welcome to this week's show of Who Cares What's the Point, the podcast about the mind for people who think. The vast majority of the evidence that we have available indicates that our climate is changing and rapidly, more rapidly than we thought perhaps even only three or four years ago. Now, the mental health impacts of climate change have been relatively understudied compared to the physical health uh, impacts and also damages to infrastructure and societal impacts. Now, there's been a recent report published by the American Psychological Association on climate change and their mental health impacts. But in particular, I'm having a conversation with Susan Clayton who is Professor of Psychology at Worcester College in Ohio in the USA. And in this conversation, we focus upon some of those things that perhaps we haven't looked at so fully in our consideration of the impacts of climate change, such as how do the socioeconomic and demographic inequalities uh, maybe magnified in the impacts of climate change? Also the importance of perception, politics, and uncertainty and how this may relate to the phenomenon of psychological distancing. And what about motivated cognition? What is it? And how do we filter out information such that we remain perhaps insulated from the very real impacts that climate change may be having on our lives and our loved ones? Have a listen to the conversation between myself and Susan and make your own mind up. But please do consider taking action too. Thank you, Susan, for for coming on the show today. Um, I wonder if we can start by uh, perhaps you telling me a bit about what your uh, background in this area is and how it is that you came to be involved in this report. Sure. Well, thanks for inviting me and for doing a podcast on this topic. Um, I have been studying the psychology of environmental issues for some time. Uh, My background is in social psychology. And um, all the, the, so the focus of this report is on mental health, which wasn't um, directly in my main area, but uh, the idea that people's exposure to environmental conditions has impacts on their psychological state is very interesting to me and something um, I really wanted to look into further. So when I was invited to participate in drafting this report, it seemed like a no-brainer to me. Uh, and it's a very wide-ranging uh, report, but I do I do notice that um, the APA did a report in 2014 as well um, on a very similar topic. So I'm wondering, what was the reason for um, another report on this so soon after 2014? Right. Well, the earlier report, I think, um, was also uh, – Eco America was also responsible for that, uh, if I'm talking about the same report that you are – And uh, their thought, and I agreed with this, was that there had just been a lot more research. Um, It's really something that people are becoming more and more aware of uh, at a rapidly increasing rate. So even in the past three years, there was a lot more to talk about. We also wanted to take a slightly different slant in the second report, um, stressing the inequities of uh, the impacts of climate change and also saying a little bit more about how we thought people should be preparing for climate change. 
That's right. And I think that's a similar reading that I had is that often the research and the reports perhaps looks at the uh, impacts and then the response. Um, and I think you've taken a different lens on the, on this report. Um, but maybe we can just start off on that, you know, very briefly, because I think that the, the the other stuff is what's interesting, the, the, the new stuff. But very briefly, what are the sorts of um, impacts um and responses that people may um, experience uh, as a result of the increasing effects of uh, climate change and also um, the more that we know about it. Right. So what we did was to divide climate change impacts up into two categories. um, And there are multiple other ways you could talk about it. But we... um, when you think about the geophysical impacts of climate change, um, some of those include increases in natural disasters, something you're very familiar with. Um, and then others are more gradual and even subtle, such as increased average temperatures, um, increases in sea level, and changing patterns of precipitation. So when you think about those two categories of effects, yeah, it's not surprising, I think, to many people that uh, natural disasters have impacts on mental health. And um, now, obviously, not every natural disaster is linked to climate change, but the rate of them will increase with climate change. So there's lots of research on the kinds of impacts that natural disasters can have on mental health, such as post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, uh, suicide, um, as well as things that are more related to sort of community and social well-being, like domestic violence um, and so on. But then the the more gradual changes, like um, uh, rises in temperature and so on, were not something that people, I think, have been considering the ways in which they'll impact mental health for the, for the most part. But if you think about these changes, it becomes clear that they probably will have an impact on mental health. Um, we have a lot of evidence, for example, that rises in uh, in average temperatures are associated with increased aggression and um, and violence, and not only sort of aggression directed outwardly, but aggression directed inwardly. So there's increases in suicide rates, for example. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, a lot of research, particularly from the sort of Australia, was focusing on some of the mental health impacts of people who are affected by drought, which is sort of a you know a middle point between the natural disaster and the and the very slow gradual impacts. Um, how are people affected by the land that they know and are familiar with um, drying out? And this research was emphasize the effects on farmers, of course, who are more directly impacted. And you see things like increased suicide rates. But then um, the more perhaps subtle effects of just changes in the land, that's what um, the research is only just beginning to be able to look at. And um, most of it is is more suggestive than conclusive at this point. But um, people talk about things like uh, just sadness and anxiety associated with these changes uh, to their familiar environments. It's um, it's hugely topical here in New Zealand. We've um, experienced um, a whole series of floods over the last couple of weeks. Um, we've seen um, a regional distribution pattern of that rainfall and where it's falling is changing because we're also experiencing drought uh, at the mm-hmm. same time. 
which is confusing for, for people yeah. when they think about, well, what are the global impacts of climate change and how is that expressed in our particular locality? Um, and I think also one of the things that you've talked about there is the impact of the secondary stresses. So it's not mm -hmm. necessarily the event itself, but the consequences of that event for people's lives. And as you say, it's over an extended period of time as people um, come to terms or not with how it is that where they live and how the uh, the the behavior of the climate and the weather patterns that they that they were used to and the implications for things like food security uh, which is right. what you've noticed but also things like um weakened infrastructure you know where s stop banks for rivers perhaps aren't able to do the job that they were doing before because of the increased load and pressure on that infrastructure Exactly right. Yes, um, the the uh, the food insecurity, the impacts on infrastructure. Um, I think people are beginning to recognize the threats of changes in disease vectors that are associated with climate change, and um, a lot of these things, of course, have direct impacts on physical health. But then the the stress of having to deal with them or even worrying about them uh, can put a great burden on mental health as well. And the other thing I want to be sure to bring up is that uh, um, we know that climate change is associated with increases in migration. That's that's already happening and um, will happen even more as you know some areas are submerged by rising seas or um, uh, desertification essentially renders them uninhabitable. And migration is something that we know is is very stressful and associated with with threats to mental health. And these are played out over um, national borders as well. It's not just uh, within a country, but people um, moving across what were um, you know artificial borders between uh, countries. Um, but also, you know, these are big climate affected areas that share the, the, these changes that are going on between different you know river catchments, between different mountain ranges. All of these things, these geographical features, play um, a much bigger. role role perhaps now than, than we have been used to compared to the national boundaries. Right. And I think we um, probably as a, as a species, humans, um, or certainly as a modern species, we tend to ignore uh, the impacts of our environments. I mean, we're aware of you know, being uncomfortable if it's too hot or too cold or um, being annoyed if uh, we don't get the right amount of rain that we want. But we tend not to think about the ways in which we're just affected on a day-to-day -day basis by environmental conditions. So it's not surprising that we're not um, necessarily conscious of the ways in which changes in those conditions are also going to affect us. And that's interesting because I think it speaks to some of the other impacts that you talk about in the report is the accumulation of these impacts that can lead to these experiences of fatalism, helplessness, resignation, fear, conflict avoidance, but also, as you say, increases in, in, in conflict and aggression too. And we actually talked about that in the first podcast of this series. I interviewed Dr. Matt Williams, and we specifically talked mm. about um, the impacts of climate change on, on aggression, both um, interpersonally, but also into group. And I think you talk about that in, in your report too. Absolutely. And one of the things that I really, um, or, or we as the authors of the report really wanted to do was to expand the concept of mental health and talk about 
um, psychosocial well-being more generally, what kinds of things are associated with being you know, happy or unhappy, um, you know, functional or, or less functional. And um, so it's not just things like PTSD and suicide or even depression. It's just um, those levels of stress, um, the ability to uh, rely on our interpersonal relationships and thinking about the ways in which those might be affected by climate change. Um, thinking about the increases in intergroup tensions that are associated with uh, these eco-migrations and with the increased competition for environmental resources. And that brings me to thinking about what the report says about those broader social um, settings um, that have an influence upon how people are affected or exposed to the risks of, of climate change, those socioeconomic and demographic inequalities that exist in our societies. How, how do they play out in um, how you imagine the impacts might be or how they're playing out right now? Right. And I think this, too, is something that people are not um, as aware of as as perhaps they should be, which is that not everybody is going to be equally affected by climate change. Um, clearly, people are already being affected uh, around the world and um, people who are unlucky enough to be geographically vulnerable are the ones who are feeling the effects first. So some people just live in more in more vulnerable areas. But it's not just that uh, there are geographical vulnerabilities, there are also um, social vulnerabilities. So, for example, if you have fewer economic resources, you're less able to, to protect yourself or to cope with the consequences of climate change. Um, something as simple as, you know, and, and there are parts of the world in which people can't afford to have air conditioners. They're obviously going to be more strongly affected by um, increases in heat. Uh, you know, the ability to buy bottled water is certainly going to, to be a big help for some people and so on. So there, there's definitely those economic inequalities. And then um, recognizing that some people uh, are essentially more vulnerable by virtue of their individual characteristics. So um, children are definitely more vulnerable to a lot of the impacts of climate change. And um, people who have sort of pre-existing problems, whether those be uh, physical health problems or some mental health problems, um, can make them more physiologically vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. So can we just um, focus on children uh, for a second, as, as you mentioned? How, how are they more vulnerable to the impacts of climate change? Well... Again, they're they're vulnerable sort of physiologically because they're young and their systems are still developing. And um, just as we know, I think, or I think most of us recognize that a fetus is very vulnerable to environmental influences. And that's why we have, uh, you know, high standards for how pregnant women should um, should behave. Because while the systems are developing, a sort of small amount of a toxin or a small amount of an impact can have a, a large and some cases irreversible impact on the developing system. So uh, the same is true for, you know, for young children that um, if they experience trauma or malnutrition um, at a young age, they may never fully recover. They may never reach the level that they would have reached otherwise. Uh, they're also more, um, their systems are in some cases not as functional, so they're less good at 
uh, regulating their own body temperature um, and therefore more susceptible to the effects of heat. Um, and then they're more kind of socially vulnerable because of their dependence on others. So when their social networks are affected, um, for example, uh, by stressors in the community, if the community is disrupted by the effects of climate change or if there's been a natural disaster and um, uh, the family has been relocated, the children are less able to cope without the help of their their primary caregivers, or at least a substitute caregiver. They are also um, vulnerable to these sort of vicarious impacts. If their caregivers are stressed, that often impacts the children as well. And we've certainly seen that here in New Zealand. Um, and, I, and I guess what you're saying here is that you know those developmental trajectories can be nudged at a very early stage in these children's lives, such that they perhaps don't end up in as good as good a place as they they would have done had this not happened. Um, and the mechanisms by which that might occur are multiple. Uh, and one of those that we've seen here certainly is that as parents and and other caregivers because the social connectedness is wide right when we're thinking about influences on children's lives um they are um distracted or otherwise taken up and stressed by trying to sort out the impacts of the particular event that they've gone through um you know this particular single event or multiple events and then suddenly two three years later they 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 have this awareness and awakening moment that actually perhaps They've not been on top of what's been going on for their child as they could have been. And, and, and you know, a lot of people are racked with guilt around that when suddenly yeah. they say, oh, my gosh, you know, I, th- there's this thing that's been signaled to me by the teacher or by another parent that is going on for my child. And I hadn't noticed this. So it's actually quite disturbing for, for everyone when, when this happens. Right. I mean, if you're focused on your own, um, you know, personal survival for one reason or another, I think parents, you know, most parents would not abandon their child, but they might not be able to be thinking about um, the well-being of the child in as comprehensive a way. They might just be doing the best they can, and that, that means letting some other things fall off the radar. And then even some very direct effects. So if uh, if the educational system is disrupted, again, maybe by a natural disaster, um, then you know, the child may lose some schooling and never, um, never quite get back to that level that they would have otherwise. Mm. One of the things that we've talked about a bit here is um, the geography. Uh, And I guess one interesting thing that you've emphasized here is people's attachment to place and the importance Mm -hmm. of place, not just their lived place. Um, and at this point in time, but also I'm thinking about indigenous cultures and their attachment to place and what that place means practically as well as symbolically, but also occupational attachment to place as well. There are, you know, there are certain things that you may only be able to do in certain places. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting and welcome addition to this report. Perhaps you could speak a bit more about some of those place um, concepts that you were trying to get across. Yeah, I too think this is a a really interesting aspect of how we're going to be affected by climate change and um, something that I suspect we're going to be learning more about in the in the next few years. Um, As you mentioned, some people are are tied to location by virtue of their occupation. So um, anybody who works in close contact with the land, uh, farmers or fishers or uh, maybe people working in the tourism industry, they're... um, 
not only are they more exposed to the effects of environments by the virtue of, of, of just being out, in, out outdoors, but uh, their jobs, the nature of their jobs may have to change as the climate changes. And that's, um, that requires a little bit of, of readjustment of our self-image because we're so closely tied to uh, what we do. If we can't do exactly that thing anymore, um, it might sort of shake up our, our sense of self and our sense of stability. Um, but it's not just occupation that ties us to place. Uh, many people feel some sort of, of place attachment or place identity in which they define themselves according to their to the place they live in. Um, our, our, our roots, if you will, to those places partly define us. Um, they give us a sense of security because usually we have learned how to live in that place. And when things change about that place, it may, it may again, shake that sense of security, um, uh, shake our, our confidence that we know how to live in that place. So if you're used to, you know, the, shoveling a certain amount of snow from your walk, or um, if you're used to the time that you plant your garden every spring and the climate changes and those things change, um, you might not feel quite as much at home in that place as you were. And, uh, you know, that we have lots of language that talks about how important it is to feel that sense of being at home. We talk about feeling alienated or, or rootless or not being grounded. So I think that kind of sadness associated with losing a place, um, is only just beginning to be the, the topic of research, but I think we're going to find out more about how important that is. And then just, uh, you mentioned indigenous cultures, and I think um, this is where the research is is kind of beginning to take note, because indigenous cultures are often more closely tied to the natural environment and the, the rhythms of that environment. Um, they are more likely to find that their lives are disrupted when uh, the environment changes, and sometimes in very concrete ways if they have to move, as um, is in the case for a lot of Alaskan natives, for example, because their their homes are essentially disappearing um, as the permafrost is melting. But so they're not just losing the place that's important to them, their, their culture, because it's so bound up in that place, is also threatened. And um, that can be an important source of, of kind of mental stability and support. Particularly, I think, if those um, indigenous cultures have had to survive and, and, and go through many different kinds of threat and, and assault on their way of what a life and being and that, that culture and knowledge of, of how uh, they are connected to that land. It's, it's interesting to me in that I've looked at this a little bit in the work that we've done, is that um, their language and their concepts around the attachment to land and what happens when you lose it um, are um, they have uh, unfortunately you could say a, a much wider range of of ways of expressing that because it's experienced for them quite <laughs> acutely and over a long period of time and it's talked about whereas I think perhaps um, certainly me as somebody who's who's a migrant who's moved two generations down from where my parents were well from but they would have had various multiple migrations before that often our language leaves us um, adrift such that we can't necessarily describe our experience particularly well. And that leaves us with a sense of 
uncertainty around what is mm-hmm. happening. What is my experience about? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, you know, there is some research suggesting that the ability to talk about one's experiences um, or to, to maybe to write about them, uh, you know, helps us cope with them and incorporate them into into who we are. So if we don't have the language to describe the kinds of feelings of of uncertainty and loss that we're feeling, it can be harder to cope with them. Um, it's interesting, though, I, I was talking to a reporter about this topic um, just the other day about how we might respond to changes in our environment. And, and she said, yes, she lives in um, Washington, D.C. And in Washington, D.C., the cherry blossoms are a big deal. Um, they are you know, supposed to bloom at a particular time of the year. And she said she and her husband got married at cherry blossom blooming time. And so she was very upset that the cherry blossoms didn't seem to be blooming at the same time that they used to. So their you know, anniversary was not occurring at that time. This year, the cherry blossoms all got wiped out by a you know inopportune snowstorm, and so it's it's a much smaller uh, you know kind of more trivial example in some ways, but it does show the sort of uh, confusion and disorientation you can start to feel when you're, you're you notice your environment changing around you. It does, doesn't it? And I, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about the rhythm that is set mm. by what's going on around us, and when our when those basic rhythms. Are, are not doing what they're supposed to be doing. It it, it upsets everything uh, around right. what it is that we expect around our environment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, you also talk about this interesting. If we zoom in upon um, you know the individual, but also you know how, how people talk about this with other people, which is what, what we're talking about here. Th- this interesting idea around um, psychological distancing. Uh, and you talk a little bit uh, in in the report about this um, nexus between perception, politics, and uncertainty, and how they relate relate to this idea of psychological distancing. So perhaps you could explain a little bit more about psychological distancing and how all of these things contribute to that, and what the impacts might be. Yeah, sure. And that this was definitely one of the reasons that, uh, or one of the motivations for the report. I think that. Um, you know, nobody or very few people uh, are positive about climate change, but there's not been a, a great deal of, of um, really vivid concern. There's some more like apathy. And I think that apathy stems from uh, a psychological distance that is a product of ignorance and that um, and the research shows us that many people feel that psych, uh, sorry, that climate change is something that's that's going to happen to people who are not like them, you know, in a place that's far away at some time in the future. So it, it's sort of distant on all kinds of dimensions. And that um, that perceptual distance allows us to ignore it and not feel the degree of concern that I think uh, we should be feeling. And um, this distance is encouraged, I would say, um, by politicians who would rather not have to deal with it, um, and in some cases want to, you know, use it as a political uh, tool. I would say um, to, you know, uh, I don't want to get too much into politics and the nefarious things that politicians do, but we know that uh, that politicians are not above um, saying things uh, purely to compete with their opposing. Parties and so climate change has become this political tool to 
uh, create greater distance between, um, you know, publics, different public groups, as opposed to something that we can all come together and talk about as something that we'll all be, um, you know, similarly affected by. So the distance is there because um, in part of the ignorance and the apathy is there in part, uh, in part because of the distance. And um, the distance is maintained, I think, in part for political reasons. Hmm. And it also feeds into this idea of worldviews, I think, as well, as and ideologies that act as filters to help to increase or decrease the concern and perhaps motivate or, as you say, demotivate us towards action. Uh, and this area is called motivated cognition, I believe. So maybe you could tell us, talk a little bit more about that because it, it's relevant to this report and appears here too. Right. So uh, these attempts to create distance wouldn't work if we weren't in some ways, um, if we didn't want to maintain this distance from climate change. And motivated cognition or or motivated reasoning refers very generally to the fact that um, even when we think we're thinking rationally about something, um, our, our cognitive processes are affected by our motivations so that we Um, select the kinds of information that we want to pay attention to um, uh, rather than paying attention to all information equally. We select the information that helps support the beliefs we want to maintain and the worldview we want to have. So certainly most people want to believe that their life is not going to change drastically and they're going to be safe. And to the extent that climate change threatens those beliefs, people don't want to believe in it. Also, um, it became associated with political parties because, uh, you know, different political parties have different attitudes about government intervention and, and social welfare. And if you believe in climate change, um, it probably makes some sense to think that the government should do something about it. So um, pe- people who don't want who don't believe in government intervention are motivated not to believe that. And we've seen this play out, haven't we, in um, recent elections, both in the USA. We've seen that play out in Brexit in the UK. Mm-hmm. It's a worry in that people select information that bolsters the view that they already hold, because then it means that they are justified in doing nothing, because they can continue with their worldview. And unfortunately, what the way that the algorithms are working now in the internet is that because they want you to stay reading and stay watching and stay on that Mm -hmm. particular platform, is that you get presented with information that reifies and confirms the view that you already have. And there are some thoughts around how it is that um, we can combat that. But um, one of the issues is around uh, information that is uh, packaged in a way that um, doesn't necessarily speak truth, but actually just wants you to feel more satisfied with what it is that you're reading and makes you feel better. Absolutely. And I think um, at this point in time, motivated reasoning has has really kind of got out of hand because they're is a sense that um, there is no single truth, that there are multiple truths and and everybody can pick and choose the ones they like best. Um, So there's been, I think, a real devaluing of the idea that scientific knowledge is objective and if the scientists say something is probably true. And if if we don't believe that, then why should we believe in climate change? And um, it just makes us feel uncomfortable. So let's choose not to believe in it. Yeah, it's, and I think it's a real 
conundrum for psychologists and psychology as a discipline because on the one hand there is this idea of of the objective reality and truth and this is undeniable that this is happening yet we realize that we are beings that um, have cognitive biases we understand that there are multiple points of views and multiple realities and we are able to hold arguments and debates around which truth takes dominance here in terms of making decisions about what we were, what we're going to do and, and psychologists recognize this so it's an interesting place that we find ourselves I think as people who are working um, to make sense of behavior uh, of individuals and groups and how they res- how we respond to challenges like this yeah exactly and um, you know psychologists are also subject to biases and uh, believing things more when they're consistent with their worldviews. But uh, that's why we have things like peer review and, um, you know, multiple studies so that there can be a dialogue back and forth and we can hopefully um, have our biases corrected by our peers. And I think that's a really important point you're making in terms of as part of the scientific process, these ideas are exposed to our colleagues and our peers and they look at that with, with rigor. And, and with multiple points of view. So it's not just an opinion here. Um, and I think that's a really important point. Um, there, there's much, much that we could talk about in the report, but I'm also aware of time. But there are, I just want to go over the recommendations that, that you make here. There are tips to support individuals, tips to support communities and what people can do. Um, but also, I think there's a really interesting section here on what mental health and other professional leaders can do and the ethics involved in that. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about there. So where you see the role of mental health and other professionals, what, 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 what could we be doing here? What should we be doing here in your view? Well, I think um, the, the, the broadest point is that uh, – Mental health professionals need to be aware of challenges to mental health. They need to be, you know, proactively paying attention to these new threats and um, being alert to the possibility that these are impacting people's mental health and um, and preparing themselves and, and training themselves to be able to cope with those, those mental health challenges. Um, and then in addition... I think that mental health professionals are, you know, are respected, and um, that respect gives us a certain responsibility to uh, to have our voices heard about this topic. So I think that um, recognizing that this is an, a health issue, that climate change is a health issue, uh, mental health professionals can have their voices perhaps be more weighty on this topic than um, if they were just uh, any uninvolved citizen. So I really think that um, both preparing as professionals and then using their role as professionals to um, speak to those who have the power to do something about it is what I would hope mental health professionals would do. Mm. And I think that there are, I agree with you. I think we do have a responsibility here. Um, and that there are, I think there are different da- dangers in downplaying the mental health impacts here, mm-hmm. because I think that what you've done here is you've um, 
uh, widen the scope of the sorts of issues that we should be considering as being affected by climate change. So you you mentioned um, decision making here um, and how decision making can be affected by increased arousal um, and mm-hmm. how that process is is changed completely. So. Yeah, there are multiple impacts here, and, and the economic case for you know depression and how much that costs to treat, and how much that impacts upon people's lives, such that you know suicide perhaps becomes a risk for the, the a minority of people, but a very real risk and perhaps an increasing risk too. Right. Is there um, any take homes that you would like to to send? to send to our listeners around this report, particularly around what it is that they, they could do and any any tips that, that are offered in the report? Yeah, um, well, I would say that the biggest take home is that, that we're hoping for is to encourage a sense of urgency or importance um, that this is not a topic that we can really afford to ignore and hope somebody else will take care of. Um, that we really need to to do something about it. But I also want people to 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 feel a sense of hope and possibility. So most you know the the kinds of effects we talk about in this report are not inevitable. You don't have a hundred percent of people who are affected by drought, um, you know, committing suicide or or uh, in, engaging in domestic violence. You don't have a hundred percent of children um, affected by natural disasters. Um, you know, uh, ruining their lives. So what we need to do is to um, be aware of the possibilities for resilience and uh, sort of combine that feeling of urgency and the feeling of hope to actually um, get prepared, get involved and get prepared for the kinds of effects that, uh, that climate change is going to have. I think it's a really good message to finish with because I think the research that we recently um, published for the New Zealand government indicated that um, the general consensus is that around about 80% of people who go through single event disasters are okay so long as they are connected to those basic supports such as food, such as water, such as security, adequate shelter and housing. But one of the really pivotal things is the social connectedness, that they stay connected with the people that they normally get support from, but also those communities who are affected too. Well, so there, there's the hope. What we don't know, I think, and I think what you're signaling is that climate change happening over a longer period of time is perhaps going to exert a different set of risks and a different set of factors and affect not just individuals, but whole regions and communities mm-hmm. who are going through this together. That's right. And so I think everybody can, um, at the very least, get informed about what they can expect in their particular region um, in the in the near to midterm and then prepare themselves for those impacts and ideally be, connect with other people as you say those social networks being so important um, in maintaining our own mental health as well as as, as coping with the impacts of climate change and uh, and finally I would hope people would would get involved um, at whatever level they're comfortable with, but uh, you know, communicate to the relevant authorities that this is it. This is a, a problem that we need to be taking action on. That's it 
for this week's show of Who Cares What's the Point. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at WCWTP or myself, Saab Johal, your host and producer at Saab, S-A-R-B. You can find us on Facebook if you look up Who Cares What's the Point and you can find us on iTunes and all other good podcast apps. Um, please do get in contact with us, contact at whocareswhatsthepoint.com or reach out to us on all of those channels. We're really pleased to hear from you. Now, if you are a new subscriber, welcome. There's a whole back catalogue of uh, episodes for you to try. And if you're a continuing subscriber, thank you for your support. Really feels good to hear uh, that this is actually um, useful to people and people are listening and enjoying the show. So please tune in again next week. But until then, 